Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rose irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market welcome to the new books network Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of a book published by Cornell University Press titled The Starving Empire, A History of Famine in France's Colonies. This book traces the history of famine in the modern French empire, showing that despite the fact that famines appear in different parts of the French empire in different decades, there's a surprising number, at least to me, of links and similarities that help us understand them sort of all together. And this book does a fabulous job, I found, of taking us both into the details of particular crises, as well as linking them together to paint a broader picture of how the French imperial state worked and often didn't work. So I'm pleased to welcome the author of the podcast, Dr. Jan Slobodkin, to join us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. I'm so glad. Could we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction from you um, and explain why you decided to write this book? Of course. So this book came out of my dissertation. um, And I didn't set out to work on famine. I was interested, uh, initially, what I was interested in was issues of daily violence, of moments when things stop working the way they're supposed to work, and uh, the raw force of colonial relations kind of uh, breaks through the veneer of, um, of uh, uh, politics and society. Uh, as I was looking at these uh, moments of state violence uh, in the archives, it came to my attention that there were pretty big famines that I, as a French colonial histori- historian, had never heard of. And this, of course, drew my attention. And uh, as I as I looked more into these these really um, quite catastrophic moments, I realized that they happen all over the French empire, uh, 
pretty frequently. And, you know, I went from there. It just uh, took up my attention and I decided I needed to write this book. Hmm. I think so often we're in positions of finding something in an archive and going, hang on a second, what is happening here? Um, So I'm not surprised having read this book that that was the starting point for you, because as you said, there really are a lot of famines here. So is there a way we could summarize a sort of French way of famine in approaching this? I think so. So historiographically, my starting point is uh, the fact that uh, the history of colonial famines has been dominated by historians of the British Empire. And they've done a really wonderful job of showing how uh, the British... they uh, uh, inaugurated a new way of dealing with famine in uh, in Ireland during the potato famine of the 1840s. This way of famine was characterized by social control, by relief that was also meant to keep populations under discipline. Uh, British historians have shown us that that way of famine was then transported to India was codified in the Indian Famine Codes, and was then inherited by modern humanitarians and served as the basis for how we continue to think about and deal with famine today. My intervention is not so much to to refute this claim, I think it's quite valuable, but to show that it's not the only thread that uh, feeds into the story of modern humanitarian care across borders. So the French way of famine is uh, slightly different than the British way as I see it. It is a progressive, uh, it is a progressive undertaking of the responsibility to alleviate famine, uh, a more abstract political uh, uh, formulation that one of the things that the French empire is supposed to do is ensure both subsistence and proper nutritional health, that in the end, the French empire was simply incapable of providing. And I argue that this gap, the gap between standards uh, of care and the inability to fulfill those standards had profound impact on uh, on the history of the French empire and beyond. I think we're still dealing with that that gap today. So, That sets us up really nicely um, to then go into some of these famines and figure out what the French did and did not do um, in response to them. So starting with Algeria in 1867, how did the French conceive of famine in this instance? And what does this tell us about the French way of famine more broadly at this point in the imperial state? Yeah, so first I should say that I This project takes a very long arc. It looks at the history of famine in the French Empire between 1867, when the famine in Algeria that you you brought up occurred, and 1945, when there was a big famine in French Indochina, uh, the, uh, the colony that would soon become Vietnam. I see this period as being divided into two roughly two two eras, the period before World War I and the period after. Before World War I, French colonial uh, administrators and thinkers 
thought about famine as something that was inevitable, that was uh, the natural result of backward races living in harsh environments, uh, that the only solution to famine was the long-term development of backward people into rational economic actors that could engage with the free market rationally and thereby achieve the defeat of famine that uh, uh, that French administrators thought had occurred in France in the uh, 18th and early 19th centuries under liberal administrators like uh, like the controller General Turgot. So 1867 in Algeria, the French thought of famine as, uh, as an issue that couldn't really be addressed. The natural triggers were locusts and drought. Um, the French had been uh, undermining and really quite violently destroying uh, indigenous Algerian society for at this point over 30 years uh, and severely disrupted uh, uh, Arab and Kabil populations' ability to uh, to deal with natural triggers like locusts and drought. This seems pretty straightforward to me. If you destroy people's infrastructure and uh, social arrangements to provide subsistence, it makes sense that they won't be able to deal with climatic events, right? But this is not how the French thought about it. They thought about it purely in terms of of their own presence, right? They didn't acknowledge at all that they had uh, violently degraded Algerian society. Rather, they thought that this famine was inevitable in a context of, uh, uh, in, in, in essentially a pre-modern and non-European context. Uh, the famine was then integrated into different uh, uh, different French interests, right? So it was used as fodder to argue for a certain vision of colonialism in Algeria. The church used it to argue that only the church, only a Christian colonialism could uh, prevent indigenous people from starving to death. Uh, The military administration argued the same thing about the army, that the army was the only uh, institution in Algeria that had the expertise and the knowledge to uh, to mitigate, if not prevent famine. And then liberal settlers thought that the only way, or argued that the only way to prevent famine in the future was to uh, generalize uh, uh, Western-style property rights, individual land tenure, to the entirety of the Algerian um, colony. In this way, they uh, sought to dispossess uh, indigenous lands and take them for themselves. So what we have is a situation in which all the discourse about the famine had very little to do with the famine itself, but rather it uh, it was used as ammunition, to, as, as rhetorical ammunition in intra-French debates. So those debates obviously are not specific to Algeria and those different positions and beliefs about um, things being linked or not linked or not being able to do anything about them, um, again, are also not specific to Algeria. So I was fascinated to read in the book that the French colonial response to a famine in Indochina in the 1880s 
does seem to be somewhat different to what you've just described in Algeria, despite maybe the assumption that, oh, well, if that's the way they're thinking about it, they could just keep thinking about it that way, kind of no matter where famine erupts next. So can you take us through sort of almost in comparison, this famine in the 1880s in the other side of the world? Certainly. So there's a series of the French, uh, the French conquer the middle and northern portions of what became French Indochina in uh, in the 1880s. And from the 1880s all the way through the 1930s, they're just a series of quite frequent, not quite as large as African famines, but probably more frequent than African famines. And in the debates that the French, uh, uh, the French administrators uh, engaged in after each one of these famines, you get, you see the particularities of, uh, uh, of how the French approach famine in different places. So while it is true that they had these kind of blanket preconceptions about famine as the natural inevitable result of backward races living in harsh environments. And this was true, uh, whatever the races and environments involved, whether Algeria or Indochina or West Africa or Central Africa, this refrain was just repeated over and over, backward races and harsh environments. But these blanket preconceptions had quite different effects in different places. So in Indochina, one particularity of the Indochinese situation was that Annam and Tonkin, the two northern provinces of the Vietnamese-speaking areas of Indochina, uh, were not direct colonies, but they were protectorates. And the French maintained the Nguyen Dynasty administration uh, as a parallel and, of course, subordinate uh, uh, political network. What this meant is that uh, they had to deal with a long-standing neo-Confucian responsibility for famine that that stated that one of the things states did was to provide famine relief, Uh, in this case through the building of dikes. Flooding was a major cause of famine in, in, in Indochina and, uh, and granaries and grain distribution. And it had long been the responsibility of the emperors and the Mandarin aristocratic class to come to the aid of people who were starving. The maintenance of the Nguyen, uh, of the Nguyen imperial uh, bureaucracy uh, parallel to and under the French, meant that this neo-Confucian responsibility persisted into the colonial period. Right? So unlike in Algeria, where famine was almost entirely dismissed, uh, that, that French administrators didn't really do much of anything except maybe provide charity if they so, if they so desired, uh, that was not the case in Indochina. The French were forced to pay attention to famine because of the maintenance of this uh, pre-colonial responsibility. Now, the other side of the coin is that while the French had to pay more attention to famine, they could also put the blame, place the responsibility for dealing with famine on the Mandarin class. So what you get is this kind of contested uh, uh you, you get a series of debates about what should be done about famine and who should do it, whether it should be the French or the Vietnamese. And uh, the French uh, 
one of the things they often did was to say, well, it's too bad that famine has occurred. Uh, it's the fault of the Vietnamese state, of the Nguyen dynasty, right? It's not our fault. It's their responsibility to deal with it. Which is an interesting precursor to, I think, some of the debates that happen later on with Vietnam that we might be more familiar with and not aware kind of of how far back some of these concerns go. I'd like us to move um, further ahead chronologically and back to Africa, if you don't mind, to pick up on something you mentioned a bit with Algeria that you show in the book, unfortunately, continues beyond um, Algeria in the 1860s. The idea that colonial practice, in fact, exacerbates the conditions that lead to famine, that this is not sort of something that just happens. Um, There are things that can make it more likely or worse. What did this look like if we moved to the French Sahel in the early 1900s? So in 1913 and 1914, there's a huge famine that strikes really an unusually large area stretching essentially from Senegal all the way across the continent to uh, to Darfur and even to the Red Sea. Uh, really a, 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 an extended and a, a deep catastrophe that, you know, historical demographers differ wildly in their estimates, but it's possible that a million or more people died. Uh, the thing that struck me about this famine is that it's one of the largest famines in the history of the French Empire. And there is almost no record of it. It enters the sources only in oblique ways uh, reports may mention it uh, briefly in passing. Uh, I found this very striking that such a, a an, an enormous catastrophe and one that would have been visually spectacular. You would have noticed, you know. There's there's evidence that you know hundreds of thousands of people died in certain quite uh, limited geographic areas. You can't not notice this. Right. But the French simply didn't seem to think it was worthy of all that much reflection. Right. Um, for one thing, as you say, there was a it's, it's quite clear that the French exacerbated the famine. Now, it's impossible to, to you know, it would be uh, 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 resorting to counterfactuals to say that the French caused it. But uh, it seems clear that they certainly didn't help. Right. Um, the famine was exacerbated in two ways, I think. First, by taxes. Wherever the French set up shop, they started taxing people. Right? Now, what taxation did, other than, than uh, you know, making them po- poorer than they otherwise would have been, is disrupt indigenous, uh, uh, indigenous subsistence strategies. Right. That often had to do with storing rather than selling surplus crops that is so that they could be used uh, in case of need. Right. What taxation does is make it so farmers and herders don't have those surpluses when they need them. Right. Uh, the other issue, especially in uh, in the in the territories of Chad and Niger, were that the French were actively uh, conquering. Uh, these areas, right? And uh, in so doing, they just, uh, you know, just the straightforward privations of war led to a huge amount of uh, 
uh, of of movement of refugees, of destruction of crops, of uh, the ruining of infrastructure and social networks that would otherwise protect against famine. Um, and under these circumstances, it kind of makes sense that the French are not. It doesn't if they're actively engaged in contributing to the causes of famine. It, it's clear that they don't see this as a problem that they have to deal with, right? And uh, again, this is what was most striking to me about this uh, this particular family was just how few sources there are about uh, a disaster of of uh, you know a huge magnitude. Hmm. To compound, I think that striking factor. Um, you talk about in the book that uh, sadly a very similar famine happened in the same region in the Sahel in the 1930s. And yet, although these might seem really similar, maybe that's something you would talk to, to what extent are they similar? The French response, the archival response, seems to be quite different. So first, were they that similar practically? And second, if they were, why was there such a different response? Yeah, I think that there is there's a kind of natural experiment in the archives where there's this huge famine in 1913 across the entire territory of the Sahel that leads to the uh, you know maybe a million deaths. In 1931, there's another famine that strikes just a very small portion of this area, the three western districts of the colony of Niger. And it's, uh, you know, it's quite destructive, but not anywhere near the scale of the 1913 famine. And we can see the, uh, the difference in the French reaction to these famines. So in 1931, administrators on the ground react much the same way they had in 1913. Uh, they're not all that interested in coming to the aid of of refugees and starving people. Uh, there's a gendered element to this because uh, one of the things administrators notice is that all the people that are, all most of the people that are fleeing into the cities where administrators tend to hang out are women and children. Uh, in their minds, this means that there is no actual crisis because they were primed to think about African families in a certain way. The African families were social units that were designed to shed unproductive members in times of shortage and times of stress. So women and children being abandoned by their families in, in the French uh, colonial mind was not something to worry about. It was just a natural uh, thing that happened, right? Uh, in fact, the men had fled to British territory looking for uh, for wages, for wage labor, and the refugees coming to the cities were signs of a very severe famine that the French just uh, – eventually they reacted uh, in a completely – inefficient and uh, unsatisfactory way, but mostly they reacted the same way they did in 1913. They just weren't all that interested in it. It was something to get through and forget rather than something that uh, was a mark of failure. However, this wasn't acceptable anymore to uh, to superiors in Paris and to human rights groups. And when they learned about the famine, a sort of mini scandal ensued. Uh, and they um, 
they saw the famine as an administrative failure for the first time. And this moment in 1931 marked a real uh, crisis in French administration, a moment of soul searching when the upper level administration, for one thing, came down really hard on the specific administrators involved. And for the first time, uh, uh, set up investigations into famine, uh, censured the governor of Niger who had failed to act effectively and his subordinates. And on a, in a more general level, this, uh, this crisis brought the, the problem of famine to the heart of French colonial thinking. Uh, from then on, you start just getting a proliferation of, of paperwork and rhetoric about the need to eliminate famine in the colonies. So that obviously suggests that they're going to do something about this, right? So can you walk us through what reforms France attempted to undertake regarding famine sort of off the back of this? And perhaps this would be a good moment to link French famine policies to the French imperial policies more broadly? Yeah. So one way to think through this problem is to think about the science of nutrition, which uh, we think about as generally quite limited to, you know, vitamins, minerals, and individual health. But around the 1920s and 1930s, nutrition uh, became this way of thinking about, uh, about populations, a way of organizing society, at least in theory, around individual uh, food needs. Right. So uh, when famine struck in 1931, ad- administrators and uh, scientists and colonial doctors were just starting to think about uh, society in terms of nutrition. So when the famine occurred, they used this new vocabulary, this new way of thinking to uh, articulate really quite ambitious uh, plans for reorganizing society on an imperial and even some of them on a global scale, right? Uh, policies could include the genetic engineering of drought-resistant crops or ensuring minimum wage, right? Minimum wage becomes something that uh, uh, is seen as an anti-famine measure for the first time, Um there's an idea that uh, if you if you ensure that people are eating milk or drinking milk rather, they will uh, they will receive the essential amino acids that will keep them healthy. So it's not just that during this period administrators are starting to think about how to prevent famine, just thinking about food and hunger in really sophisticated ways, right? And yet. Though they are uh, discussing really, really ambitious plans for something that at it, it really at its most utopian looks like a welfare world, right? uh, uh, a reorganization of society on a global level that coordinates uh, agronomy, economics, culinary practices, uh, all together to ensure that everyone has not only enough food, but a healthy diet. 
while these plans are being uh, discussed in international organizations and at the upper levels of colonial administration, uh, the French Empire is incapable of actually doing much of anything on the ground. And hunger continues to be a huge problem through the 1930s and 1940s. So let's go to one of those places where it is such a problem. Um, Going back to Indochina, to what became Vietnam, you already talked to us a bit about how famine relief in this particular context was pretty directly tied to kind of state responsibility. So if we get to the point of 1945, where these views within the French Empire on famine and nutrition have changed, there's ideas for reform, but as you just said, they don't work very well on the ground. How does this then work when France is faced with famine in Indochina in 1945, and it is a question of famine relief as well as sovereignty? Yeah. So even though the French are incapable of uh, of executing effective famine policies on the ground, Right. They're simply unwilling to invest in the institutions and, uh, uh, and the methods that will allow them to do that. Uh, standards are being set. Right. So by the time famine hits in 1944, 1945 in Indochina, and it's the biggest famine in the history of the French Empire, something at least a million people died, possibly as many as two or even three million by some estimates. Um, by the time that famine hits French Indochina, uh, there is an expectation that one of the things states do, including the French Empire, is prevent people from starving to death in the areas in which they are in control. Now, there's a severe complication in 1945 because the French aren't actually in Indochina anymore. Uh, the French Republic had fallen in 1940. Um, the Vichy French colonial administration was uh, theoretically in power until March of 1945 under the control of the Japanese who had uh, negotiated kind of overlordship, suzerainty of Indochina at the threat of uh, military intervention. Um but then they overthrow the, the Vichy government in March of 1945. So at the worst of the famine, there actually is no French administration present in Vietnam. So what the French do, because they're trying to convince both Vietnamese people and the international community, including the United Nations, that uh, that France is still sovereign in Vietnam, despite not having a a presence there, is they make these these plans to alleviate famine, even though they cannot put those plans into action. So there's a contingent of French administrators in British Calcutta, which had in fact experienced its own famine in 1943, uh, who are are making plans? They kind of act out administration in French Indochina from afar, and one of the things they do, uh, very ostentatiously but completely fantastically, they're in no position to do anything at all since they're not actually in the territory, is to make detailed plans to uh, distribute grain and come to the aid of starving people. 
And in this way, they uh, perform sovereignty for themselves and for an international community in an attempt to show the world that they are still sovereign in French Indochina. And it isn't super convincing, right, to spoil the story a little bit? (laughs) It's not super convincing. And what happens, though, is that... Uh, that famine relief becomes a constitutive element of sovereignty. So in 1945, Ho Chi Minh declares the independence of Vietnam. And like the French, one of the things that the New Democratic Republic of Vietnam does is very ostentatiously uh, provide for famine relief, or at least claim to be providing for famine relief. They criticized the French for having allowed the famine to happen, even though, again, they were not actually in the territory, uh, and claimed that only the Vietnamese state itself can truly ensure the well-being and the subsistence of uh, Vietnamese people. So in setting the standards for, uh, for subsistence and for nutritional health in 1920s and 1930s, the France kind of set the stage for its own failure to meet those standards and the assumption of those responsibilities by new uh, post-colonial nations. So how did that work then in other post-colonial nations, not just in Vietnam, where there were such, as you said, ostentatious plans? But what about other countries that came out of the French Empire? How did they and do they respond to famine? So one way to think about this is to think about the different forms of care that are available to which people. So in 1945, Vietnam declared independence. They earned its independence militarily in 1954. And very soon afterward, uh, all empires kind of just fell apart. By the 1960s, very few European colonies remained. Uh, In the 1970s, a serious famine hit the West African Sahel again for the third time in about 50 years. Uh, what we see in this famine is that even though the the uh, Europe is no longer sovereign in West Africa, European and American NGOs intervene in the famine, and in in doing so, they they uh, they undertake what the historian Gregory Mann has called non governmentality. Even though they are not sovereign, they under they they take on some of uh, the tasks and the responsibilities that have long been associated with sovereignty, things like subsistence. So there's a way in which that kind of modern international humanitarianism is a continuation of colonial forms of care, right? A form of imperialism without sovereignty. So that obviously is not necessarily what we think starting a book or a conversation with Algeria in the 1860s to see such continuities um, and traces in the present. What, therefore, do you think that this history overall of the particular places and more broadly, what does this encourage reckonings with? I think it encourages reckonings with a few things. Uh, First, it urges us to ask 
who is able to make claims on what resources. When empires collapsed in the 1950s and 1960s, European states became welfare states. Uh, Subsistence, certainly, and nutritional health and well-being in general became the responsibility of the state, right? In a way that was not reactive but proactive, a way that that is automatic, uh, that is universal. Um, in post-colonial nations, that didn't really happen because need was severed from capacity. Right? So uh, in the 1970s, it was uh, uh, post-colonial nations were not capable. They didn't have the means, the resources uh, to come to to uh, to address the famines that uh, struck their people. They were forced to. Uh, ask for aid on humanitarian terms, right? And humanitarianism, as opposed to welfare states, are reactive, voluntary, rather than automatic, and essentially a weaker form of care than welfare states. So I think that one of the things I've been thinking about is this question of uh, of need and capacity. Uh, who, how, uh, that... that colonialism and that post-colonialism severed responsibility from the ability to fulfill those responsibilities. And then the question of who is able to have recourse to which forms of care and how strong those forms of care are. Some very important questions um, and a really helpful way to tie those in to better historical understanding as well, right? Things that were surprises in the archives and not as well known. So doing a lot of things there. As a final question, would you mind or do you have anything that you are working on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on the history of French famine, anything you're working on now that this book is done that you'd like to preview? Yeah, there are some things I'm thinking about now that I'm, I'm free to read widely and think more broadly after finally <laughs> completing this book. Um, I'm interested in care across borders in a post-colonial world. How did these uh, uh, different forms of care that emerged from the colonial period play out after the end of formal empires? And I'm interested in looking at that in food policy and uh, uh, humanitarian responses to famine. But another realm in which I'm thinking about this problem is uh, uh, the international response to HIV AIDS in the 1980s. And I think there are similar questions of how we care across uh, for people across borders, especially when it's a problem that doesn't respect national borders. Um, and the question of who makes decisions for uh, for a global community is at the forefront of this project. Hmm. Fascinating and important questions. Best of luck with that research. And while you're doing it, um, listeners can read the book that you are done with. It is available for them to access. Uh, again, titled The Starving Empire, A History of Famine in France's Colonies, published by Cornell University Press. Jan, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.